Amen. Good morning. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians. A couple weeks ago, we kicked off a short series of two sermons through chapter 8, and we made it through verse 3 of this chapter. And as we noted then in the chapter 8, Paul is dealing with an issue that isn't immediately clear to us, and that's the issue of whether a Christian can eat meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan idol. Now, for most of us, this is not a live issue for us today, but it certainly was a big issue in the pagan and Greek city of Corinth, where most of the meat that the city had was at some point connected with pagan worship Rituals, And so Paul is answering the Corinthian believers who had written to him and asked him whether or not they could eat this meat that was sacrificed to an idol. Is this sin? We need to know Paul. And what's helpful for us to see is how Paul answers the question. Because how he answers the question, the specific question related to idol meat, will teach us how we need to act in parallel situations today. That is, the situations in life that are less black and white, and more gray. We know that murder is wrong. We know that theft is wrong. But there are other areas that are not explicitly laid out in Scripture. These are the areas of Christian liberty, or we might say Christian conscience, Christian freedom, the things not directly addressed in Scripture. What kind of clothes should we wear? What kind of food can we eat as Christians? What kind of activities can we participate in? Who can we vote for? Any number of things. These are gray areas where believers in churches are especially tempted in two ways. Either thoughtless participation or judgmental abstention. And to combat these twin temptations, Paul Paul instead grounds the whole conversation in love. That's what we talked about last time. Love is the Christian virtue that is to circumscribe every conversation about Christian liberty. Every area of Christian ethics should be surrounded by love. But before we go any further, let's begin by reading together the text. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 8 in its entirety. Hear the word of God for us today. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. 
We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word for us today. Let's, let's pray to begin our time. Father, we know that your word is sufficient. It is sufficient for life and godliness, and you have left many things unsaid. You have left many areas of liberty, and you've done this that we might seek to learn what it is to love one another well. Father, we ask that you would help us to do that, that we would calibrate our consciences according to your word, that we would be able to stand together and to sacrifice and give up our own rights for the good of those around us. And in doing so, be made more like Christ. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at verses 4 through 6 and noting the basis of Christian freedom. The basis of our Christian freedom. I won't spend too long here because Paul's point is fairly straightforward. He says in verse 4, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That there is no God but one. And so regarding the specific question of meat sacrificed to an idol... Paul agrees with the words of the Corinthians, most likely the stronger or the more mature brothers who were arguing that idols aren't really anything. Idols don't have an existence. They aren't real. And so eating meat that had been sacrificed to them isn't a problem. That's how they would argue. I can eat this meat even though it was slaughtered and offered to Aphrodite or to Zeus or to whomever. Because we all know that they aren't real gods and that there's only one God, the God of the Bible. He goes on in verse 5, For although there may be so-called gods, that's little g, in heaven or on earth, indeed as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul's statements are significant for us for several reasons. First, note quickly in passing how Paul's monotheism is in no way at odds with the distinction, the personal distinction between the Father and the Son. This is just kind of a, a little bonus point right here for us to note. Contrary to those who might say that the doctrine of the Trinity was invented after the New Testament was written, Paul here expresses a very clear understanding of both the unity of the Godhead and the personal distinction between the Father and the Son. But secondly, note how Paul is picking up a big theme here from the Old Testament. And that theme is the impotence of idols. He recalls the words of Isaiah 46, for example, which laments about those who lavish gold from their purse and weigh out silver in the scales, and they hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. And then they bow down to it. 
They worship it. They lift it up, put it on their shoulders. They have to carry it around. They set it in place, and the idol just sits there. It can't move. And if someone cries out to it, it does not answer. It can't save him in the day of trouble. And Isaiah's words remind us that idolatry in this world is so silly. We fashion the idol. We have to carry it around, and then we decide to bow down to it and ask it for help. It's like Psalm 115, which speaks about the same theme. Psalmist says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. Hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. The idols are impotent, they're useless, they're vain, they're they're, they're nothing. And so the foolishness of idolatry is very clear to us. This reminds me of a story when I was in college, Jordan and I were able to go and be missionaries through the IMB to Indonesia, and we were there with two other guys from Oklahoma, and we got to this remote part of the jungle, and one of the guys, when we got out to go to the river, he needed to make a pit stop. And so he went and found a big tree on the side of the river and made his stop and then came in. We were ready to go swimming. And our translator came up in a panic. Did did you just do what I thought you just did? What? You see those baskets hanging from that tree? That's where they put the offerings to the God that lives in that tree. You you just defiled that tree, the, the, the holy tree. And I thought to myself at the time, like, what kind of God is so powerless that he couldn't prevent, you know, a pit stop on his tree, on his house? He was so powerless, there was nothing he could do. And that's what this idolatry reminds us of, that idols are useless. They're nothing. They're nothing compared to God. But lest we begin to think that such pagan idolatry is no longer a threat to us, How many of us bow down to a different idol? A different idol of our own making. Perhaps it's the idol of our own performance. We might be terrified of what other people think about us, so we slave away trying to be the best, or the funniest, or the smartest, or the prettiest. We've made our reputation and our performance the idol before which we bow down and worship. And in doing so, we become just like the idol. Unstable. Muted. We have become shaped and controlled by our fear of man, just like an idol is shaped and controlled by another. Or maybe we bow down at the idol of of mammon, of stuff, possessions. We clamor for the next best thing. We tell ourselves, if I just had this, then I could be happy then I could be content. If I just had this thing here, then I would be safe. Then I would really be happy. But in reality, we're bowing bowing down to the idol of our own greed and our own discontentment. And in, in doing so, we become just like it. We are insatiable. We're controlled by another. It's a good reminder for us that idolatry didn't stop in the first century. It's just as tempting for us today. Whatever we're putting our hope in, whatever we're trusting in, whatever brings us ultimate joy and happiness and security, that's the little g God that we have fashioned into our idol. 
But such worship is foolishness. Paul would have you hear about another God, about the true God, the only true God who sent his son Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your heart and to liberate you from enslavement to impotent idols. If you're trusting in your performance, if you're trusting in stuff, if you're trusting in anything other than the creator and Lord of the universe, then hear the good news of the gospel today. I want you to hear how you can be set free from enslavement to a God who is never satisfied. Hear how you can be set free from the hamster wheel of never being good enough, never meeting the standard, never being pretty enough or funny enough or smart enough. Hear about the God who sent his own son to be the perfect substitute in your place, to atone for your failings and instead give you his perfection. His performance was enough. His life was perfect. And by trusting in Him, you are granted that same perfection. Your record becomes clean. Your life becomes sufficient. God the Father sees you covered in the perfection of His Son. And because of the Son's sacrifice in your place, well done, my good and faithful servant, is what you will hear. You're made part of His family. Unlike the pagan gods, You don't have to serve the true God perfectly enough, and then he'll like you. Rather, he's loved us in Jesus Christ. And because he's loved us first, now we can then love him. That's true worship. That's the basis of real Christian freedom. The Bible tells us that when we come to Christ by faith, we are truly liberated. We're set free. And he who is set free by the Son is is free indeed. We're liberated from having to earn our way to God through our own performance. We're liberated from the crippling fear of men and their opinions. We're liberated from having to worry about what other people think about us all the time and to do what everybody else says we have to do. We're free to obey God and God alone, which is always for our good and our joy. This is freedom that can only be found in Christ. Come to Christ and believe and taste of this joy. Come to Christ and have this freedom yourself. He is the only way to find peace, to find rest for your soul, to find freedom in this life and the next. Christ is the basis of Christian freedom. Now having looked at this basis, let's move on and look at the context of Christian freedom. The context of Christian freedom. Paul has thus far agreed with the freedom-loving Christians. The stronger brothers, those that were correct in their belief that idols are nothing, and so it's not sinful to eat meat that had been sacrificed to them. Paul agrees. But what Paul does in verse 7 is to remind the stronger brothers that they are not alone in the church. No man is an island, to quote John Donne. And so we need to remember others. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Paul's saying that not all have this knowledge that idols are nothing, and there's only one real God. Some brothers who were weaker in their conscience still associate their former pagan ways with eating the idol meat. That means when when they're offered the meat, 
Or perhaps when they see a stronger brother eating the meat, it brings back to them memories or feelings about their former days in pagan idolatry. Maybe they are misinformed about the true nature of idols and evil spirits. Maybe not. Maybe they are aware that idols are actually nothing, but they still have a conscience sensitivity towards the idol meat and the temple worship. Either way, both the idol meat itself and seeing brothers in Christ partake of it was causing them to stumble, to have their conscience defiled, Paul says. Let's talk for a minute about the conscience. What is a conscience? Our conscience is a a moral capacity given to every person by virtue of them being made in the image of God. Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15, that the, the work of the law is written on everyone's hearts. Each and every one of us. That means when a conscience is working properly, we don't have to convince people murder is wrong. Praise God, most people will affirm murder is wrong. Theft is wrong. Even unbelievers with a properly functioning, a relatively properly functioning conscience will affirm that. However, our conscience is not infallible. After the fall in Genesis 3, each of us has a conscience that is prone to miscalibration, to not working quite right. Our moral compass can be off. It's not totally gone after the fall, but it's prone to give false readings. Our conscience will make us feel guilty, even though we have no reason to feel that way. Conversely, our conscience might also not convict us, even though we are quite guilty of something. In fact, one of the blessings of the gospel is that our guilty conscience can be cleansed. Our world projects upon us an ever-fluctuating standard of guilt and innocence. It tells us you can indulge, do whatever you want, be happy, live you. You just live out you. And then at the same time, it says you're never good enough. And so most popular psychology today exists to help us ignore or silence our conscience, which is from birth screaming at us about the nature of righteousness and the fact that we know God exists and that He is the judge of all mankind. Romans 1, for example, tells us that every person knows God exists and from birth we try and suppress that truth and unrighteousness. We do that in part by ignoring the conscience within us. But when we come to faith in Christ, we have help. As it relates to our conscience, we have the Holy Spirit who helps us recalibrate our conscience according to God's Word. We have the truth of the Bible, which helps us realign what feels right and what we know to be right in the Word. But even after we come to faith in Christ, our consciences are not perfect. Each of us, every one of us, because of our upbringing, because of our particular experiences, our own dealings with sin, each of us have areas in our lives where we are still the weaker brother. That's what's interesting about this passage. The church doesn't just have two camps. It would be much easier, simpler if it did. The strong people, you sit over here, and the weak people, you sit over here. We could separate. But that's not how it works, is it? That's not how it works. Each of us is more or less mature in any given area. You may be generally one of the stronger believers in the church, 
with your, your mind and your conscience normally attuned, aligned with what the truth of Scripture is, but on this particular issue, you may actually be very weak. You may be a mature leader in the church, but on the issue of idle meat or alcohol or Sabbath observance or whatever else, whatever liberty area you want to go into, you find that you're still weak. None of us likes to think of ourselves as the weaker brother. We like to think of ourselves as the strong, more mature believer. We like to think of ourselves as those who are guarding the righteousness of the church. We're preserving the reputation of God's bride. We're keeping far afield from temptation. That's exactly what the weak brother was doing. He was trying to stay far away from temptation and sin, but in doing so, he was adding laws to God's law and binding the freedom of the stronger brother who just wanted to eat some meat. The weaker brother usually thinks he's being the wise and safe one, but he's actually constricting the genuine freedom of another brother. He's taking away the freedom that Christ has truly given. And that's why in this whole issue of Christian liberty, Paul started the chapter talking about love. He talked about building up, edifying. And that's why we all need to have great charity, great humility whenever we're talking about these gray, gray issues. We must exercise the self-control needed and, and think the best of our brothers and sisters and about their motives because in each area of liberty, we might be wrong. My conscience might be miscalibrated. I might be mistaken. So we need to remember our own fallibility. And when there is disagreement on one of these areas, let it drive us back to Scripture to see what God's Word speaks to this issue. We need more than just humility. We need to remember love. Because in these discussions, context is important. Go back to the issue at hand. Paul agrees with the stronger brother that meat was fine to eat. That's not necessarily sinful. No sin there. However, the brother isn't eating meat in a vacuum. He's not alone. Your actions have consequences. Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So Paul's warning them that a lack of consideration of your context, of the brothers and sisters among you in the body of Christ, can lead you to harm a weaker brother. Your thoughtlessness can be defiling, destroying. The weaker brother will be tempted to see you and to violate his own conscience and partake in the liberty even though his conscience would forbid him. This reminds us that social pressure, peer pressure, can be a powerful motivating factor towards sin. That's a problem. The Bible makes it clear for us that it is neither wise nor safe to ignore our conscience. If we make a practice of ignoring our conscience, it will eventually become numbed or calloused. In fact, Paul warns Timothy about a group of people who had so done that that they had seared their conscience. They had so neglected God's moral compass in their hearts that they were no longer able to discern right and wrong. And so the weaker brother 
will be tempted to partake in what would be a legitimate freedom, like eating idle meat, but to do it into contradiction of his own conscience, thereby sinning against himself, because as Paul says in Romans 14, whatever is not done in faith is sin. They violate their conscience. They defile it. And the effect is verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And so the point is this. A lack of love, a lack of consideration of the weaker brothers leads you to sin against the God who has saved you and who had already saved your brother. It's no slight thing to exercise your freedom without proper consideration of, it effect, of its effects on others. We must consider the interests of others ahead of ourselves. That's what we studied at length last time, how Philippians 2 shows us a Christ who is our perfect example. He considered the needs of others as more important than his own, and he willingly enslaved himself, bound himself to the point of death, even so that we might be forgiven and freed. Christ forgives us. He forgives us of our lack of love, of our thoughtlessness towards our brothers and sisters, our lack of consideration. And He does that so that we might be freed to give careful attention to the needs of the weaker among the body. And that freedom found in Christ grants us the ability to have a proper perspective on our freedom. That's my final point for today. The proper perspective of our freedom. The proper perspective of our freedom. Look again at verse 8. Paul says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat the meat, and no better off if we do. So eating idle meat doesn't make you holier. Neither does abstaining from it make you holier. Exercising our liberty or choosing not to, it doesn't matter. We're no more righteous one way or the other. The same is true of any genuine area of Christian freedom. What matters is how our freedom and the exercise of it impacts those around us. Look at verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Don't let your freedom make others stumble. Don't let it become scandalous. Don't let your freedom become a point of temptation for those around you. Consider them and consider their conscience as more important than any of your exercises of freedom, even a legitimate freedom. That's sacrificial love. That's the standard that Christ has set for us. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what question has been in your mind probably this whole chapter. Paul, are you telling me that I will always be at the mercy of the weakest brother in the congregation? How long will I have to subject myself to the weakest brother and the weakest conscience around me? Forever? Maybe. Look at verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's own example is that he is willing to forego his own freedoms as long as necessary 
for the sake of loving a brother well. That is Christ-like love. That is what self-sacrificial love looks like. Now, of course, we don't want our weaker brothers to remain weak forever. We all want the whole body to mature more and more in the cause of Christ. But we have to know there will always be an influx of immaturity into the church. If God's blessing a church, there will be new converts. There will be young persons coming to faith, always joining the congregation and bringing their weak, miscalibrated consciences with them. And so, in a healthy church, there's always a fresh source of weaker brothers for us to love well. Furthermore, we need to have great discernment here in these issues of freedom, in these matters of conscience and weaker and stronger brothers. Great wisdom is needed to discern between a weaker brother with a legitimate conscience issue and a person who just delights in fault-finding and legalism. That's a tough call sometimes. We must discern the difference because a weaker brother with a legitimate conscience issue needs to be lovingly shepherded with the Word of God. But an arrogant, fault-finding, legalistic brother who just likes to point out the flaws of everybody else, he needs different treatment. He needs to be rebuked and admonished. That's why God has gifted and set apart elders and deacons in the leadership of the church to prayerfully navigate some of these issues. Sometimes it's not so clear which one we're dealing with, and so we all must prayerfully open God's Word and consider our own hearts in the midst of every disagreement. And so to sum it up, I think that Paul would say a healthy congregation would look like this. Love-filled Christians seeking not to offend and growing Christians seeking not to be easily offended. Love-filled Christians seeking not to offend and growing Christians seeking not to be easily offended. That's the, the dynamic of mutual love and sacrifice found in a healthy church. And so let me bring this to a close with some practical wisdom for us. I know that some of you would really love for me to just make a list and say, this is okay, this is sin. You can do that, and you can not do this. I'm not going to do that, because I'm going to bind your conscience if I do that. But I want to give you some wisdom drawn from other pastors, added to it, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and give us some practical guidelines for us to think through when we're considering our freedom. Should I engage? Should I not engage? Should I participate? Should I not participate? Six points. They all start with E and they're brief. Number one, expedient. Expedient. Is this activity expedient? I'm thinking 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are profitable or expedient. Is what I want to do useful, wise, helpful? Is it expedient? Second, think Emulation. Emulation. 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. You say you're a Christian, you should look like Christ. That's what John is saying. And so we ask, is this freedom, is this activity something Christ would do? Am I emulating Christ by participating in this freedom? If so, then the action is not only permissible, but it's good and right. 
Third, example. Example. Are we setting the right example for others, especially for our weaker brothers and sisters? If we emulate Christ, others will be able to emulate us and follow our example. Just like Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Number four, evangelism. Evangelism. Is my testimony to the watching world going to be helped or hindered by me engaging in this freedom? Will unbelievers be drawn to Christ or will they be turned away by what I'm doing? Will it help me obey Colossians 4, 5? Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Number five, edification. Edification. Will I be built up and matured in Christ? Will I become spiritually stronger? I'm thinking here of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things edify or build up. Number six, lastly, exaltation. Exaltation. Will the Lord be lifted up, exalted, glorified in what I do? God's glory and praise ought to be the supreme motive behind what we do. I'm thinking 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever we, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Is me engaging in this freedom going to bring praise and glory to God? And there we go. Six ease to help us think through should we participate or not participate in this area of Christian liberty. And it's on our freedom that we will meditate today in our closing. The Lord's table is a, a beautiful reminder of the genuine freedom we have in Christ. Consider Christ's willingness to save and, and whom He was willing to save. Christ became a slave in order to save weaker brothers just like me and you. Brothers and sisters prone towards judgmentalism and prideful disdain of others. He became a slave to rescue those who thoughtlessly and hatefully flaunted their liberties to the detriment of those around them. He gladly came and died, demonstrating His great love and the ends to which He would go to rescue His bride from sin. The cost of this rescue is pictured here before us in the meal of freedom where His blood is pictured and His body is shown to remind us of salvation found in Him alone. By faith we partake, relying only on Him as our sacrifice, relying upon His body broken in our place and His blood shed for us, which is the only cure for a guilty conscience. This table is for all those who are like the disciples found in Acts chapter 2, those who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, now found in God's Word. Those devoted to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. If that's you and you're not out of fellowship with the gospel church, then we invite you to join us. Christ invites you to come and partake of his meal of freedom. But if you're out of fellowship with the body of Christ, or if you've not yet come to faith and obeyed Christ in baptism, then let these plates pass. I'll pray, and then our servants will come, and we'll partake all together at the end.
Father, we thank you for the good news of gospel freedom because of Christ and his work. We thank you that we must but believe, and by believing, we have life, and we are set free indeed. Father, take these elements and use them to build up your church. Help us to remember the love of Christ, and by remembering his love, help us to love others well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Table servants, please come.